Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I will be speaking with Jill A. Marstler, PhD, MPP, who is the lead author on an article published in the November edition of Critical Care Medicine, entitled, A Multicenter Phased Cluster Randomized Control Trial to Reduce Central Line-Associated Bloodstream Infections in Intensive Care Units. Marsteller is a, an associate professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Bethesda, Maryland. She is also an executive committee member of the newly formed Armstrong Institute for Patient Safety and Quality, also at Johns Hopkins. Um, so it's really great to speak to you. Uh, your group has been a uh, certainly a lead um, group in both reduction in uh, central venous catheter-related infections, uh, as well as the entire patient safety movement. So it's uh, very exciting to have you um, on our podcast. With well, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's, uh, um, it's great to be able to talk to the critical care medicine audience. Great, and I'm sure people definitely want to hear from you. Uh, as a health policy researcher, I was curious how you got involved uh, in this area of research. and. Um, from your vantage point, what your your interest uh, in this um, project uh, and other projects um, has been? Sure. Well, thanks for um, mentioning that. I, it it is somewhat rare, perhaps, for people who are health policy researchers and health services researchers to have gotten involved to this level with a study that is both interventional. And, um, you know, analyzing the data after the fact to figure out whether the uh, intervention worked or not. So it's been a, an interesting road and the people at the Armstrong Institute do a lot of interventional research to try to improve quality and patient safety in the hospital setting. I spend a lot of time, especially in the ICU. So a number of years ago, I started working with this group, um, because my interests are in the organizational components um, that support quality improvement and patient safety interventions. So I want to know about the context, where we're actually trying to improve quality and improve patient safety. And so the quality improvement projects that they were already doing um, have a lot of opportunities for people to learn more about what are these different sites like and when a site is different from another, is it going to be a better place to do an intervention or a worse place to do an intervention? Will it be more successful or less successful based on the context of care there and the culture that they have within that organization? Um, so my involvement in these projects has been um, largely with helping analyze the data and creating the research design, but also with helping sites figure out how to implement a quality improvement project. So I don't do any of the clinical teaching, but I might teach a site how to um, bring about change within their ICU, for example. Uh, what are the steps of change management? How do you try to bring people along um, to start using the intervention and use it consistently? Um, what can we do to try to improve our communication and teamwork and um, our interprofessional relationships uh, in order to have it be easier to bring about an intervention and have it be a meaningful 
um, change in the way that we deliver care. So that's the kind of role that I've played, uh, even though I'm not a clinical person. Those are the kinds of roles that a person in health services research or health policy or organizational behavior can um, assist with, even in interventional research. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we our unit was actually a participant in the um, Cusp project in in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and I was certainly struck by the emphasis on um, culture and safety culture uh, and teamwork culture as a, in a very important um, component of uh, performance improvement and uh, and safety. Uh, your group certainly has really brought this uh, to the forefront and related to CLABSI, uh, especially in the, in the Keystone project, which uh, I presume sort of led to this uh, this more recent um, randomized trial. As I, I think about that and, and seeing already uh, in the Keystone project dramatic results, uh, I, I wonder how important it was felt uh, to have uh, a follow-up, uh, a, a randomized trial to try and um, prove causality in terms of the intervention and the uh, reduction in infections? You know, that's a good question. And I think many people were very satisfied with the Keystone Project and the results that came out of that. Um, it was well analyzed and um, showed you know, dramatic results. But I think there were still questions in the minds of some um, especially around the idea of whether Michigan was just a very special place at a very special time. And so there were some questions about, can this actually be replicated in a different population? Um, they had such a, a wonderful spirit in Michigan. They had this dedication. They were all working together. It was, um, you know, magical, uh, as some people would call it. And so can you replicate that? Can this really be something that everybody can do? So that was one question. But in addition to that, I think others um, in the scientific community in particular, um, they really look for the randomized trial as a proof that the intervention itself is what is bringing about change. There were some uh, overall um, trends towards reduction in bloodstream infections that were going on at the same time as Keystone and that continued actually put past Keystone, um, uh, the uh, analysis period of Keystone itself. So there also was no way to really talk about uh, why it worked, you know, or specific pieces of it that worked. I think there were, you know, still some outstanding questions. And really the, the top of um, the science for us or the, the strongest evidence is the randomized trial. So we wanted to try to see whether we could demonstrate an effect in a randomized setting to make a contribution to the literature and also just in case there was any shadow of a doubt left in people's minds. If there's somebody that's not adopting an intervention to prevent bloodstream infections because, you know, wow, I, I, I'm just not convinced or the evidence is not as strong as it is for X, Y, or Z that was tested in a randomized trial. Well, we wanted to be sure that we spoke to those people and said, you know, let, let's test it. Let's see. Are you right? Or are you, is it in fact the intervention that brought about this change in rates? And so let's test it and see. The Adventist Health System was very happy to come in to uh, work with us in order to test that question of whether we could demonstrate a causal effect for the intervention. So can you elaborate a little bit more on, on 
the the methods and what was important in terms of the design of this trial uh, to demonstrate the causality um, in terms of the intervention and the outcome? Well, one of the difficult things about trying to do a randomized trial, a lot of times your recruits don't want to be in the control group, right? <laughs> I want to do the intervention. I don't want to be just the control. That's no fun. And um, I want to provide this intervention to all my patients. So, you know, it's often difficult to get anybody to be willing to be randomized because they don't want to take the risk of being in the control group. What we decided to do to counteract that was to use a phase design where we would, over a short, relatively short time period, test whether or not there was an effect for the intervention group while um, having the control group not do anything. And then we would add that control group into the intervention so that they would get it eventually, and then they couldn't really object to having been randomized to the control condition. So that was one element of the design that um, was important just because um, there were these sites were really all wanting to receive the intervention, and that was how we got them to kind of accept the idea of uh, randomization, at least for some time period before they later received the intervention as well. Some of the other aspects of it that were important was that because we did have some hospitals that had multiple ICUs, they needed to be randomized as a group instead of having their ICUs possibly be one in condition, you know, one in the control and four in the intervention because we just knew there would be too much contamination within a hospital. You know, they often have common supply rooms. Sometimes doctors actually work in multiple ICUs and so on. So it was important for us to try to prevent contamination by using the cluster randomized design. And there were about five of our hospitals that did have multiple ICUs in them. Sure. And the, the, the intervention was multifactorial. And if I recall, there were a, a couple of aspects that were added in relationship, for instance, to the Keystone Project uh, that were somewhat new for this project. Is that right? Right. So, um, essentially, it was the same set of steps that they used in the Keystone Project, um, the five uh, CDC-recommended practices for preventing infection, and then all of the elements of the CUTS program. The things that we added were that we included a checklist for line maintenance as well. So we really wanted them to focus on maintaining the line. And the, the Keystone Project, um, certainly as they continued with the project, I'm sure they developed protocols for their maintenance. But, but for this project, we started out with that and gave a standardized um, line maintenance checklist, essentially, to all of the sites to use. Um, in addition to that, we kind of had packaged the education based on all the learning that they had done in the Keystone Project. So in Keystone, they were creating it as they went. And we benefited from that in the sense that we could go back and look at the slides that they had made for their education. We really put together, I think, a streamlined curriculum that was very logical and it was sort of pre-planned ahead of time. So I think that was a, another um, advantage. And then the, we also tried to really focus on the fact that um, this intervention could be led by nurses within the unit and that the nurses uh, could drive the quality improvement and the patient safety effort for this project in each of their units. Now, that's not to say that, that the physicians didn't have a really critical role, and 
our nurses would often tell us, you know, about how important physician engagement was and how much they wish they had still more physician engagement. So it's really important to note that this is a multidisciplinary intervention when it's done best, but that it's a great way to engage nurses in quality improvement and patient safety, and that this is a way that we can help make jobs feel more rewarding, right? If they're having the opportunity to improve quality, they get charged up about going to work every day. Um, they love the idea of being challenged and participating with a multidisciplinary team to come up with ways to provide better patient care, safer patient care. And so it might be helpful in terms of our nurse retention problems that we're experiencing across the nation to engage nurses by having them participate more in quality improvement projects and, and even lead quality improvement projects with the assistance of the entire interdisciplinary team. Yeah, as, as I hear you talking, you know, I, I was actually reflecting back on to, uh, to our unit's part participation in the CUSP project. Uh, one related to the, the dressing um, maintenance, which was uh, generated a lot of discussion on some of the conference calls and and how how best uh, what what best practices are. But more importantly, uh, on, on in terms of uh, nurse leadership, our nursing staff uh, and nurse nurse leadership staff uh, was quite engaged. Uh, certainly, the, I think many times the more challenging part is physician engagement. Um, but it is such a it needs to be such a team approach uh, if we're going to make an impact in these areas. Um, so I recall that quite fondly. Yeah, you know, one of the keys I think for the CUSP program is that uh, we really encourage teams to customize any of the tools that we have created to make them fit your own unit better. You know, if you if there's some piece of it that you really want to look at, then add that to your tool. Don't use the tool that we've made and not alter it at all just because, oh, wow, well, you know, it, 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 this is what works in a Keystone project or this is what works in the Agendas project. Instead, we like to see this customization because then you get much better ownership. And I think that that's probably something that you guys did in your project in, in Pennsylvania, um, you know, creating some of the ownership around these things because you've got to make it fit your own local area. Sure. Yeah, we actually found that very valuable. So essentially the, the, the trial you had in – a group randomized uh, to an intervention and a group randomized to control and the control group would later uh, get the intervention. The intervention was uh, involved a checklist for insertion, checklist for line maintenance, and a great emphasis on uh, the culture of safety, the science of safety, team building skills. Can you take us through some of the outcomes and and also if you, if you don't mind discussing just a little bit, because uh, I, I myself found it confusing um, in terms of just the statistical methods used, uh, further analysis in terms of uh, what exactly, uh, when one looks at, for instance, table three on page 2,937, uh, non-exact zero parts versus exact zero parts, and so how exactly that analysis was performed. We had um, 45 ICUs that were participating, and they were randomized into either the intervention group or the control group. And then we collected baseline data on everybody. And then we had continuous reporting from the intervention group, and then but no reporting from the um, control group until seven months later. And then what we used was the first report from the control group as they uptook the intervention as our post period and compared that 
That was the first quarter then for the... It was the first quarter of intervention for the control group, and we used that as the first period for testing whether there had been an effect within the intervention group that was different than what we saw happening in the control group. So when we start looking at the idea of the exact zeros versus the non-exact zeros, you have to think about a process um, of preventing infection. And there are some sites that have had zero for months. They come into the intervention and, you know, they really know what they're doing. Their process is in control. They have prevented infections very successfully. So you might argue, well, what's the intervention going to do for those folks? And, you know, the chances are reasonably good that they're going to stay at zero. And you can't tell whether they're staying at zero because of something that comes from the intervention or whether they're staying at zero because that is the natural state for that particular unit. So in that kind of case where a zero is produced kind of by the process being in control and um, by the nature of those ICUs, we would say that that's an exact zero. It's kind of a structural zero, if you will. That's a zero that the intervention isn't going to change. It's not an accidental zero, if you will. Then we have other zeros, which are hit upon, you know, you've got, you've got an infection, or you get one infection, one infection, and then one month you got zero, and, and maybe a run of two more months you get zeros, but then it goes back up again to one. And that's the situation where they're bringing the process under control, but it's not something that is a foregone conclusion that they will always have zero. And so those are what we call those non-exact zeros, and those are the ones that are included in um, the continuous portion of the two-part regression. So the exact zeros are there's either no zero in it, in it and structurally we think that it's pretty much always a, a, a no zero versus any infection at all or an accidental zero, if you will. And then the, the other portion of it has some zeros that are these, you know, occasional zeros plus anything that is a positive in terms of number of infections. And that's in the Poisson portion of the model. So I hope that helps explain kind of the difference between what we would consider an exact zero and what we consider a non-exact zero. So to paraphrase, it sounds as though the non-exact zeros are ones that you wouldn't expect the intervention to impact. But the, or actually, am I reversing this? It's the non-exact zeros that you would expect an intervention to impact and the exact zeros that you would not? Right. So exact zero is like a structural zero, an in-control process zero. Pretty much think that's always going to be zero. doesn't matter a whole lot what we do with intervention. Versus these zeros that, you know, yeah, they show up and, they're, and, and we love them. We love those zeros. Um, they show up, but they're not necessarily going to always be there. They're not consistent necessarily. And so rather than looking simply, um, what you did as well, looking at the differences uh, in incidents uh, pre- and post-intervention in the uh, intervention group versus the control group, this then further demonstrates that it's the intervention that's playing uh, a role rather than um, more, crude, more crudely looking at the differences? Well, that's right. So um, when you do the regression, you can essentially compare the effect of being in the control group to the 
the effect of being in the intervention group. With respect to the control group, you can see that there was a lower incident rate ratio for the intervention group. So what that means is that over time, you know, over the time period that we were looking at, the rate was reduced more in the intervention group than it was kind of by nature or secular trend that we see occurring in the uh, control group. And we're able to do that with um, multivariate regression so that we can control where necessary for things that were not even between the intervention group and the control group at baseline. I see. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, essentially, you were able to demonstrate that in the intervention group, there was a uh, reduction uh, in the incidence of uh, central uh, line associated infections compared to the control group, which was also uh, more, I guess, additionally sustained in the intervention group. And also the control group benefited once uh, the intervention was begun there. Is that a good summary yeah. of your results? You right. Want to elaborate right. a little more? Yeah. One of the things that we were very happy to see was um, that there was a large percentage reduction uh, from where they started for both groups to where they ended up. But you could argue, well, wow, they started kind of high, and so your reduction is large because they started high. So instead, I like to anchor it to the fact that both groups were able to get their infection rates down below one per thousand line dates, which is a very low level for them to have reached. And they had reached that pretty consistently by the end of the intervention. So I really think that um, it's useful to try to pull it down to the absolute level and say that it's possible to stay consistently below one and that that nice low level, you know, is not only achievable, um, but you can, you can keep it down there um, over a, a long period of time. And again, it's important to always be striving for zero. It's important mentally for everyone to consider zero is the place that we need to be and that's where we're going and to hold that as your goal, to remain vigilant um, with the dedication to not allowing any infections to occur. If we don't maintain that vigilance, then there will be exceptions made, or we'll say, wow, you know, that one patient, they were, uh, they were really sick, or they, you know, had such terrible autoimmune problems that we couldn't possibly have prevented that. But the more exceptions we make, you know, then the exception creeps towards the norm, right? We want to stay in a place where every infection is considered unacceptable, and we investigate every infection to figure out, well, what happened here? You know, we need to know, is um, there anything we can learn from this infection um, that we can do better in our process to prevent the next one? So the goal, I think, should always be zero, and we know that sites can reach zero for long periods of time, um, and, and that's what, you know, we want everybody to continue to strive to do. As you were talking, I was thinking about our unit, and uh, you know, I remember celebrating the first year anniversary of no no infections, uh, and getting so close to that second year, and then having an infection. And, uh, oh no! Being being frustrated, but it, it is it is easy to make that exception, especially when they're so rare. To think that by ana by analyzing the etiology of that particular case of that particular infection, that would have an impact on others. 
when when they're when the infections are so rare you know when how, what, do you, what do you tell the, the sites that, that that tell you that and how do you convince um folks that yes these really should be never events well you know i think the thing about it is that when you have an infection there's no way for you to know whether there are more of them about to happen and so you want to investigate the one that showed up because it could be that somebody has slipped under the radar. Somebody is new and their training was incomplete or there's some kind of a climatization problem with a certain room or there's some kind of a um, rampant bug or, you know, we're drawing too many cultures off the line. There's, there's a change and you won't be aware. Teams won't be aware of what that change is necessarily. So when that one infection comes along, that's why we need to investigate all of this stuff because you can't be sure it's gonna stay rare. Um, when that one happens, you know you can't know for sure that it's gonna go back down to zero just because you had zero for a long time before. What if there's been some unexpected change? So it may make it, a, you know, a hard bar in the sense of really trying to get people to investigate it as though it was preventable figure out what was the one piece that we could have done differently or the two pieces perhaps and then just you know just learn from that and use that forward because we learn from nothing as well as we do from the mistakes that we make that's when we say okay well I'm never doing that again yeah I think that stressing the preventability of each uh, each incident is uh, yeah, that, that certainly hits home and, and uh, I think reminds us to uh, to, to to investigate and, and, and to learn. You know, as as you tested your intervention uh, I, and demonstrated some element of causality, um, I couldn't help but think. Um, and you know, I think we see this sometimes in other critical care interventions where multiple um, changes potentially or multiple interventions are combined into one package. How do we know which aspects of this uh, intervention are, are most important? Or is there a feeling from, from your group that has a tremendous amount of experience as to which aspects of the, the intervention are, are, are most valuable or where you get the kind of the, the most bang for your buck, if you will? Well, we definitely have um, used intervention in a lot of different contexts at this point, a lot of different um, countries, for example, or health systems or states and so on. And one of the things that I think shows up as being very important is an attention to the culture, an attention to the nature of the place where you're trying to improve your patient's safety. So if people can't speak up and they can't say, hey, you just violated the, the uh, sterile field, you know, or they feel that they can't voice uh, objections, then they won't. And then you'll be more prone to infections reaching a patient. So it's really important that the place where you're working be a fertile ground for patient safety and quality improvement projects. And so we've seen in some of the locations where we've tried this that they've paid a lot more attention to the technical aspects, to the clinical aspects of the program. And they haven't really paid much attention to the culture and how teams are working together, how um, communication uh, occurs across team members. And where they don't pay much attention to that, it's really hard to get much change because it's just not a, a good place to try to bring about um, these quality improvement interventions because people are spending their time 
you know, more worried about not liking the way that they were just spoken to or nobody's listening when somebody tries to interrupt a procedure to say, hey, you know, we've got a problem. That cultural piece is really important. As far as which piece of the intervention or which of the recommended practices are most influential on bloodstream injections, uh, we have some data that will help us hopefully separate some of that out a little bit. In particular, early preliminary analysis suggested that hand washing in particular was related to bloodstream infections. So sites that kind of self-rated as not being as consistent with hand washing tended to have higher infection rates in any given month. So hand washing, you know, as always, is incredibly important. But we tend to look at the intervention as a package. You know, there are many people here at Armstrong that would say, you know, we don't necessarily need to know which little piece of it is the most influential as long as we're using the whole package and we're trying to attend to all of these recommended practices and attend to our culture of communication and interprofessional uh, relationships. Then, you know, we'll get good outcomes. And so... Um, they would really emphasize that maybe it's not as important to know which little element of it is the most influential, but rather the tax force would use it. It's interesting that uh, there's been so much um, emphasis and uh, promotion of the checklist, but it's it's so much more uh, than simply taking a checklist and putting it into practice. Uh, there's uh, so much more work that needs to be done in order for that to actually be successful. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think there was a lot of attention to the checklist because of some of the, um, you know, the New York article that came out and other venues that talked about that piece of things. And it is pretty powerful, you know, the what a checklist can do in terms of helping standardize things and also getting people, you know, on the same page in terms of procedures and how to do things. If the standardization itself can be an extremely important way to control your infection rate. You know, I've had um, medical students say to me that they've seen lines inserted, you know, three different ways over some short term, you know, short period of time. So if that is still kind of random in terms of how it's done or there is no protocol, then there are going to be variations that are not optimal. There are going to be variations in practice that are more likely to allow infection to occur. And so, you know, standardization is a really important tool. And so the checklist is very useful that way. But um, I agree with you that with just the checklist, you know, you wouldn't get very far because if your area is still one where, you know, yes, the nurse is doing the checklist to say whether or not all of the steps were followed. If the nurse doesn't inform the doctor that the sterile field was violated or doesn't remind the physician that, hey, you forgot your hat, or, you know, later in the, in the maintenance process there are some omitted step or something done not quite right, then, you know, those infections are going to occur. So it will be harder to bring about the improvements and safety and quality unless you have a world where people can be open with each other and talk about um, errors and potential for errors and mistakes. And I imagine that there are many more outcomes that we're not measuring that are improved um, other than uh, bloodstream infections 
by this type of intervention. What, what's next? Uh, what what uh, is your group looking at uh, for the future uh, in terms of further analysis uh, uh, within bloodstream infections and other areas of patient safety? Well, right now we're working on a large project funded by AHRQ to reduce infections in the areas of CLASPI and SSI and ventilator-acquired pneumonia, um, SSI being surgical site infections. And uh, we're working in all three of those areas in uh, cardiac ORs, cardiac ICUs, and the floor units to receive cardiac patients. So in that sense, what we're doing is expanding to more infections and also across different unit types and trying to get those unit types to work to together to prevent infections throughout the entire patient's day. So that's one new area that we're moving, that we are currently involved in. With respect to the data from the Avendus project, um, we are going to be looking at some of the nursing outcomes that we collected as part of this project too. It was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as part of its um, uh, inquiry series of grants, which are interdisciplinary nursing research and, and quality grants. We collected some nursing information like turnover rates, for example, and skill mix, and we want to see how those um, measures are related to the outcomes of CLABSI, um, also to length of stay and mortality that we also collected in this project. Um, another area of further research is looking at some of the uh, contextual information about these units to see which of the units um, performed better and what what was it about those units statistically that's associated with better performance. Maybe some of those um, characteristics can be imitated or taught uh, so that other units can benefit from those contextual elements. So they may be things like how the people on the quality improvement team uh, interacted with each other, so the, the actual cuff team, did they get along well, did they have good unity? Those are things that you can teach people how to do in terms of improving possibly their outcomes by improving their process. And so you, you uh, when you set this project up, you have measures of some of those contextual factors as well? We do, and and um, the team checkup tool is was the thing that we used to collect those data. And in the article um, that we're talking about today, there's actually a chart, figure two, that um, shows the data that we took from the team checkup tool. We asked, for example, how far they thought the intervention had progressed within their uh, unit on that, and that was on a, collected on a monthly basis from all the members of the quality improvement team or the CUP team on those units. Um, we also asked them other questions about how the quality improvement team uh, interacted with each other and what barriers they were facing to their implementation. Um, and so the figure two shows you um, what they had said about their use of the preventive practices over time. So those data came out of that monthly tool that we collected to find out what's the context like and what are your processes looking like this month versus next month versus the next. That's great. We certainly look uh, forward to your further work and uh, the ability to learn more and more about what um, factors uh, help us uh, improve our patient care at the bedside and reduce infections, both uh, as an extension of this project and your uh, other projects that you're developing. 
was really uh, great to talk to you this afternoon, and um, again, we do look forward to, to further uh, work from you. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to uh, you and the Society of Critical Care Medicine audience tonight. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. SCCM's internationally renowned fundamental critical care support, FCCS, course, has been updated and enhanced to reflect the latest research and the most effective training approaches in critical care. The fifth edition curriculum emphasizes case-based education with scenarios that mirror clinical reality. Ensure that every member of your staff who comes in contact with critically ill patients has the confidence and skills to treat those patients effectively. Bring SCCM's staff training courses on initial critical care and disaster management to your institution. Ask to speak to the SCCM Hospital Relations Manager for details about the FCCS or FCCS online courses, Pediatric Fundamental Critical Care Support, or Fundamental Disaster Management courses. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.